guess I should feel worse about it than I do, but when it when it comes right down to it, I feel like it's important to be able to pay the rent. So yeah, I don't I don't really feel like there's like that much material difference. I don't I, I don't know that it's so much more pure to have done something for like the editorial side of a magazine and then eschew the corporate side because you're too good for it. I think I'd rather be a sellout than a hypocrite. Yeah, I assume you're not doing like ads for like, you know, clubbing baby seals or fracking or anything. I mean, those are not as lucrative as you'd think. So no. I would assume that there's a lot of money in the fracking industry, at least. I don't know if they're, I know they're like actively seeking cartoonists, but they've got a lot of money to kick around. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But the baby seals is just where, you know, it's the the bottom's really dropped out of that market. That's fair. People aren't buying as many pelts these days as they used to. That's interesting though. So you feel like you've shifted to longer form stuff. What what does that mean exactly? So longer form stuff. um, Yes. I've been, I've been pitching like, longer pieces to the New Yorker and other places. And even the the weekly gag stuff is is also pitched. You know, you send in a batch every week and they kind of buy one or they don't. Um, I've had more off weeks this year than than in previous years. You know, I mean, I feel like everybody um, is is experience, experiencing some kind of like productivity loss in one way or another. In terms of pitching stuff, yeah, that's been like less, there's just, there's just less time in, in a day. But longer stuff like books, etc. I feel like usually my year goes with like, you know, the usual stuff like gag cartoons and a couple longer things here and there and writing that, most of the writing I do, I also pitch. So most of it comes from that. And then I'll have like one big project I'm working on. Again, is usually a matter of like having successfully pitched something. So like last year it was, it was the Hugs book, which weirdly enough, I didn't pitch. They pitched me. So you keep describing it as weird that like anybody would want to hire you for something or pitch a book to you or have you do an <laughs> ad that even at this point in your, your career, you're consistently shocked that people are interested in your work. <laughs> you know, you, you spend long enough on that wall and you start to think of yourself as a flower. At a certain point though, you know, it must be clear that like you're, you're, I mean, because you're still doing it and, you know, right. and, and obviously it just being published in the New Yorker is a success in and of itself. It must feel like you're on some kind of a right path. Um, yeah, I'm not. I am. I am. I'm a cockroach of a woman. I so I'm, I am still here. I start, look at my New England upbringing and be like, don't compliment yourself. Stop it. Does pitching to the New Yorker still feel like a crapshoot at this point, even though you've been doing it for a while? Does it, does it still like surprise you what does and doesn't make it in? Less than it used to, I guess. There sometimes there are ones where I feel like are kind of a shoe in that don't go, and that's always like, oh, okay. But then sometimes I'll sell one where I'm surprised that they took it. But I am less often wrong now when I have one that I'm like, oh, this is definitely, this is definitely going to go. So it doesn't feel as, I mean, you know, I'm more than 10 years in on it now. So it, it doesn't feel as, as daunting as it, as it used to. But I don't know if anybody ever gets to the point where they just assume they're going to sell every week. I mean, hardly, any, every, hardly anybody sells like every week. So there's always like an opportunity to hate yourself. I feel like there's like a certain amount of mystique very specifically around the New Yorker pitching process. When you've been doing it for long enough, are they candid or upfront about why they aren't picking something? Do they, you know, do they suggest that you punch it up? Do they give you editorial advice? Do they want you to like repitch stuff? Or once it's kind of out of the way, it's basically 
dead to them. No, you can repitch stuff. Um, I repitch stuff all the time. Yeah, I would say it's not like it gets more um, transparent based on how long you've been pitching. In fact, I think in some ways, the editors are more likely to give you feedback if you haven't been pitching for that long. So um, with Bob, it really depended on, on Bob Mankoff was the previous um, cartoon editor at The New Yorker. And with him, it really just depended on what mood he was in. Sometimes he was feeling chatty, sometimes he wasn't. And with Emma, who's been the, um, who has been the editor for a couple, couple, two, three years now, I, I think she, she is very conscientious about like, you know, here is what works, here doesn't. With me personally, she knows what I'm up to enough that like, you know, there's not like a whole lot of back and forth. If she has a specific note for something I've sold, then she'll tell me, but um, I also, well, obviously there's not a whole lot of in-person pitching happening at all, but even previous to the COVID situation, I very rarely went in because I'm, I'm very lazy. And if I don't have to put on pants, I'm not going to put on pants. So that's what PDFs are for. You don't think the, the process was useful at all to actually so like go there in person and to, to, to get oh, out it's of the, a, the apartment? Oh, it's a hundred percent useful. If, if, if you are new to the magazine or you haven't sold before, it is, it is very, very useful to go in in person and get us and let them get a sense of you as a person first of all because i think there is a lot to be said for meeting somebody face to face um and to and to hear feedback uh, absolutely so i was going in face to face for a long time before i sold and then even after i sold to establish the the relationship absolutely um and then, you know, as they get to know your stuff more and get to know what ex- to expect from you, it's less of a, let's see how we can make this better. It's like, if you don't sell for a while, maybe you'll start to try to mix it up or you'll outright ask, like, is there something else I should be doing? But it's not as, it's not as, um, it's not as crucial at once you've really established a relationship, I think, to, to get that like face-to-face or or constant feedback. Do you find like now that you're not like actually like in some ways physically able to go in that that you kind of miss the process? Like I I find like there's the stuff that I'm missing at this point in my life is Mm. stuff that I never really expected to miss. (laughs) Like commutes. The grass is always greener but yeah just like really just just stupid just go into the office, just really just stupid stuff. I'm somebody who would like go into the office, you know, five days a week. And now I'm like stuck in my apartment. And yeah. yeah and yeah, I, the commute, like being on the train in the morning, you know, reading a book on the train is something oh. that I absolutely miss. Yeah, no, I, um, I mean, I haven't had to commute. Um, uh, I've, I've worked from home for the past decade plus, but I, I enjoy the subway. Like I like being on the train and I do miss that. I, I don't know that I necessarily miss the opportunity to go in for the meeting, mainly because once they moved to the World Trade Center, it really changed the vibe of it. Like people didn't go out to lunch really that much anymore. Um, the One World Trade Center has a very, it, it, it really hasn't settled into its energy yet, I guess is the kindest thing to say about that. Building. You mean because it's a mass grave? Is that... <laughs> uh, yeah, there's that um <laughs> so yeah it just it never felt as um as convivial i guess plus like the um offices um the new offices were open are open plan so it felt like they would sometimes like put a conference room aside for the um for the cartoonists to like sit and hang out in and wait their turn but like 
it always just felt like, it felt more like I was imposing when I would go there than it did when they were in Times Square. You seem like a, a, a pretty social person and obviously you've got this, you know, you've, you've got a performative act to, for, for your comics and that you're like going to these events and standing up in, in front of people, which isn't necessarily, that's not a characteristic that you see with, with a lot of cartoonists. So that kind of all came about years and years and years ago before I moved to New York. Um, in, in 2003, uh, John Hodgman asked me to be in a series that he was doing at the time called Little Great Books. And I lived in Chicago at the time and I was, I had no idea about anything. I was like, sure, I'll come to New York and do this show. Like, here is a funny cartoon I made. Maybe I could just show a slideshow. Oh, you actually flew out specifically to do the first one? Not just not just for that, but um, I also would take any opportunity I could at that point to go to New York and show stuff around. Like, I kind of had it in my mind that it was, I was, I was ready to leave Chicago. I just didn't quite have the balls to move to New York yet. So this was really the thing that like kind of pushed me over the edge into thinking like, okay, maybe this is a thing I, maybe I could live here. So um, I came out and did that show and spent the rest of the weekend just like showing my portfolio around and like, you know, meeting people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But that was sort of the genesis of this feeling of like, I can do something on stage that is connected to what I do um, cartooning wise. And it really like, that kind of cracked open this possibility for me that like I, I have really loved ever since. Chicago seems like a pretty good cartooning town. You know, obviously there's a lot of great cartoonists out of there. You know, there's a lot of good stores. There seems like a, a good scene. Did it not feel like a good fit professionally? It was, it is a fantastic cartoonist town. Like, and yeah, it's not even so much that it didn't feel like a good fit professionally. I am not such a talent that people were going to like, beat down the door to find me like especially in 2003 2004 it was very important for my career growth to come out to like the seat of where things were happening and beat down those doors myself so that made a huge difference in my career and at the time I was more focused on being like just an illustrator I mean I had the comic strip I had Lulu 8-Ball but I thought of myself more as an aspiring illustrator um, and it took me a really long time to to come to the realization that, like, I am basically a writer who draws more than anything else. Um, so that's sort of been like the like that's settling. Oh, sorry, I squeaked the chair. Um, that's been my that's been sort of like the arc of my professional life since moving here 16 years ago. Was this sort of like reorienting of what it is that I wanted to do based on like what I could do. So at that point, it was important to be in New York in person to actually like go to the offices to pitch your things. That's not something that you could have done, you know, online. Not really. You know, like, I mean, it was like, obviously there was an internet, you could email people, but it still made a difference. I think just to be able to do that kind of thing in person and also just to sort of like be in the mix and go out places and meet people who would, you know, pass along a name to you or recommend you for, you know, for this, that, and the other thing. Um, you could, you could send your website, you could send your portfolio, but like, you know, social media wasn't really a thing. So you couldn't sort of like build a brand for yourself, um, in the way that you can now. Um, and also for me personally, 
I, and this is nothing against Chicago. I liked Chicago, but I never fell in love with Chicago. And that is, that's on me. That's not on Chicago. There's no really real great reason not to. It's just, you know, I grew up on the East Coast. I never intended to die in the Midwest. Moving from the third largest city to the first largest city doesn't feel like that large of a jump. Oh, New York was and is a lot more expensive than Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really just like a pragmatic problem of, can I pay my rent doing what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, it was pragmatic. And also New York is like tangled and ungovernable in a way that Chicago is not. Chicago is um, a a state and workman-like place um, in ways that I, I really appreciate um, into like in theory, but in practice, it just like, it never captured my heart, if that makes sense. <laughs> and I had moved to, I had moved to uh, Chicago from Baltimore, which, um, where's where I went to school. And I loved and loved Baltimore with all my heart. It might just, part of it might just be like, I couldn't love Chicago because I, I never fell out of love with Baltimore enough. <laughs> but yeah, Chicago really in on paper is the perfect city. I, I don't know why I couldn't like, you know, have my heart there. It's interesting. I say this as somebody who has like been to both places, but not spent longer than a week in either one, but they both, they both feel like working class cities in similar ways, mm-hmm. Chicago and Baltimore. They're pretty different. <laughs> Baltimore, I feel like is just kind of has like a slightly unhinged quality to it. It's it's got more of a, an anarchic vibe than than I really sensed in Chicago. One thing that I I think was very um, important for me in like my early twenties, like something that laid a base I didn't even know I was laying, was that people just did the work and didn't make a big fuss about it in Chicago. And I think that was, um, that was a really important lesson to absorb, even if I wasn't really conscious of absorbing it. Baltimore in the 90s was a very easy place to exist with your thumb up your ass the whole time. Like, I, I sometimes, you know, wonder, like, like, what would my life have been if I had stayed in Baltimore? And I don't know, I probably would have drunk myself to death by now. And um, Chicago demanded more of you than, than Baltimore did in terms of, in terms of ambition. Um, but Chicago was also a place where like ambition was kind of seen as suspect. Like, um, and to this day, I tell myself that I'm, I'm not a particularly ambitious person, but I, like, that can't possibly be true. No, because you've been, like, Chicago is an ambitious place, perhaps, but you moved to the most ambitious place in the U.S. Yeah. In terms of cutthroat, you know, hierarchies and, and, and you know, and, and people, like, yeah. slitting each other's throats to get work. It doesn't I mean, get much harder than here, New York. I moved here to light a fire under my ass. Uh, and and it, it did. So... Um, I at least was, you know, self-aware enough to know that I, I needed that fire lit under my ass. Um, so, so yeah. And I will say that it was a lot less cutthroat than I thought it was going to be. I found that by and large people were, I wouldn't say, you know, eager to help per se, but people were like, people got it. They're like, oh, you're here trying to do a thing. We are all here trying to do a thing. Let's try to help each other out, um, as much as possible. So 
yeah, I mean, it, it might be different if I had moved here to get into like show business or something like that. But no, I, I, I feel like I got pretty lucky. I got the feeling reading your, your last long piece from The New Yorker that you're kind of, you're, you've been experiencing over the past few years something that I have been experiencing in, in New York, you know, for probably going on a decade now of just like the, the trickle of all of your friends leaving the city. For, for some reason, and, and maybe this is because, maybe it's because I'm from California originally, but like, you know, I've probably lost about half of my friends to Los Angeles over the over the last 10 years. It obviously predates COVID. Is your sense of just, is it is it New York changing? Is it just kind of getting older and having lived here for long enough that people, you know, are leaving? I think it's a factor of so many things. I mean, I, I lost a big wave because I have a, a daughter who's eight. I lost a big wave of like mom friends when all of our kids were, were toddlers, because a lot of people kind of like, you know, tapped out early and moved to the suburbs, um, which was not a thing that was ever in the cards for me. I, I, I absolutely has, have never wanted to, to live in a suburb. Like, um, but when I, it's, when I visit, I, I am very, I'm reminded of the fact that being in a suburb makes me tired and angry. Uh, so <laughs> specifically when I like go home, I definitely revert to a 13 year old me. And I, and I try to fight it, but I, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It is just, it's, um, and also like the suburbs of New York are also not cheap, you know, not to keep coming back to practical things, but it's not like we'd be like saving a lot of money if we, if we moved to New Jersey. So, um, so yeah. And you know, you like, like you, I have a lot of friends who have moved to LA, um, like COVID definitely changed the landscape um, in a lot of ways, you know, people like moved upstate or moved to be closer to their, to their parents. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's been, but it, I wouldn't say I've felt like, like I look around and, oh my God, everybody's gone. I feel like there's a, there's still like a lot of people who are kind of, kind of hanging out. Um, but if you would asked me a year ago, I would have said, well, you know, like money has just decimated this city and made it unlivable. And now it's like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's in this very awkward stage of still being true while also being decimated by like a virus and no money. So I don't know how that's going to shake out in the long run. There's always, for as long as I've been here, there's always been kind of a romantic, a romanticization of kind of a, you know, the gritty shitty, New York. I, I see some like short-term changes happening. Obviously, there are a number of, of, of smaller businesses that 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 can't sustain. But it, it does seem like it's it's just going to kind of accelerate everything. It's gonna, you know it's it's just going to accelerate everything in in the very strategic direction that things are moving in. Yeah, I mean, so many things were kind of untenable and un- unsustainable um, to begin with. And yeah, no, I think you're right. I think this. I don't know what it's going to do to colleges, but I can't imagine it'll do anything good. You know, businesses that have shuttered um, during this time, I mean, so many of them aren't going to come back. Like, I don't know that it will bring things to a point where the things that were making it unsustainable, like high business rent and, you know, high regular rent will, will get to it, will drop to a point where people can rebuild. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be a weird, weird 
a couple of years. How is an eight-year-old adapting to to this weird new world that we're living in? So it was it was tougher in the beginning um, because like it was this very abrupt shift from school to online. That was that was really rough. She went from liking school to it being a real shit show. Um, it's easier now because you know we're not we're not like you know we're not being profligate. We're not like going out to bars or anything like that but you know we we go to the playground and you know she can go outside and see some friends and that kind of thing so it, it we're not as isolated as we were in the early part of the pandemic um and um some things she's just kind of like getting used to all the kids are kind of like it's not, they're not losing it but they're all a little screwed up right now <laughs> that's kind of all of us to some degree right yeah exactly and you know um And also kids are, kids pick up that their parents are worried and that like things are, are, you know, things feel weird, feel tenuous, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think, but you know, kids are also adaptable. um, And if World War II movies have taught me anything, it's like they can often find, you know, (laughs) find ways to have fun even in a bomb site. So God, what was that? What was that Roberto Benigni movie or... Oh God! Yeah, like concentration camp. Yeah, I think it was called Life is. Was it called Life is Beautiful? It was like literally pretending to be Charlie Chaplin in a concentration camp. Yeah, yeah. So we're not not there yet. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, one the major change in in my daughter's life is that um, I allowed her to get into Roblox, and that's been crazy. Was that just an issue of like too much screen time? It has. It's. It's, um, I'm not even particularly hung up on screens. I'm like, no, I mean, I was raised by a television and I turned out fine. But um, it's like the sort of immersiveness of video gaming, like has always, I'm like, I I don't really know about that. But it became this like social outlet for her. You know, she would get on FaceTime and like FaceTime and play. And it seemed both cruel not to let her. I mean, she's an only child, like, you know, she wasn't having her usual slate of like uh, playdates, and also I'm like, I need you to be doing something so that I can do stuff. Um, so yeah, it kind of turned into this whole thing where now she um, she lives in Roblox, um, and it's it's it is what it is, I guess. I don't know. How much has this uh, affected your productivity or your output? Are you spending the same amount of time working that you were previously? Nope. Nope. Um, it's 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 plummeted. It's, it's been, it's, it, it's been, it's been kind of hard. Um, and yeah, I've kind of adjusted by just staying up later and later, which is, um, which honestly was a little easier before school started, but now, you know, she, she's got to get up for, um, you know, I mean, she has to be at like at school on the computer at 845, but today was like the first day of in-person but she goes feral pretty quickly. Like she'll sleep. If if we don't let, like make her do anything, she'll fall asleep at 10 and she'll wake up at eight thirty or nine. Um, but I have gotten myself into, like, I usually go to sleep between two and five um, and wake up between nine and 10. But if she's, if she has to do school, then, you know, then I'm up earlier. So that's been, you were pretty nocturnal to begin with. Yeah. That's when you do your best work. It is. Um, and if I can sort of get past the hump of being like, you know, tired when I put her to bed, then like, 
I can have a really good productive night. Um, I have the, the best technique I have found is to do like, you know, get her, get her to bed um, and do like a half hour workout <laughs> and then like let that energy take me into whatever it is I have to actually go to sleep. And my husband's the opposite. Like he is down for the count by nine and it's rare that he's able to sleep past six o'clock. So yeah, we're kind of ships in the night. Has that basically been the case for most of your professional life? Not until, well, yeah, I guess so actually. Cause he was a, a, a late sleeper until um, t- 2011. We went to my best friend's wedding in Australia and the jet lag uh, broke him. <laughs> Just ruined him for life. I guess I mean, specifically for, for your own stuff, you know, cause, cause there is that oh. sense of like early on, you know, I, I know you had some, like, you were working at, at some record distro, yeah. and obviously, like, anyone who is pursuing, you know, some sort of creative field and is not independently wealthy, you have to really find those hours after work to to, to do it. Exactly. And I mean, I've always been, like, a, a night owl-tending person anyway, but yeah, for sure, when I had a day job, I would just, you know, I would do my real work at night. I would say that I never put in a great performance at my day job. You didn't care as much? It wasn't what I was, it wasn't what I, my ambitions didn't lie in my day jobs. Like I actually, I enjoyed my jobs. Um, I liked work. I used to work at a record distributor called Caroline and I, I enjoyed that job. It's where I met my husband, but that wasn't like what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then previous to that in Chicago, I worked for um, a distributor called Carrot Top and I, you know, I waitressed and did, you know, those are all things that like, I enjoyed well enough, but it wasn't like what I wanted the, the path of my life to take. Was there ever a point, though, when it felt that you wouldn't really be able to earnestly pursue being an artist for life? Oh, for sure. I had that feeling a lot more in Chicago because I felt like I was getting a certain amount of work, but it just felt like I was never, I was just kind of spinning my wheels. I didn't really feel like I was ever going to like like move out of this rut. And then moving here was things started to happen like relatively quickly. I mean, I at least knew that if I was going to be spinning my wheels, it would be in a different rut. (laughs) Um, But I, I started getting more work right away. I started like seeing more avenues and possibilities to work. Um, I met people that were doing interesting things that I kind of wanted to be a part of And so I moved here in January of 2014 and I, I quit my last day job in 2016. No, my God, what am I saying? I moved here in 2004. Okay. I was like, wow, that all, that happened so fast. No, my God. It was really just the length of the Trump administration. (laughs) Time really pancakes. Time is horrible. I noticed that at this point in my life that like you can just, you can lose a decade like that. Seriously can't. It's, I don't like it at all. No, I moved here in January, 2004. I quit my day job in, in 2006 and have not had a day job since. This is a while ago when I was having a conversation with somebody and I kept, I kept calling Trump Bush. Right. (laughs) And I don't know, like, I just think there's this thing that happens to your brain. It's like a mad fold in at a certain time. Like it just completely compresses. Oh, absolutely. I had this very unpleasant thing happened to me where I was on Facebook and somebody posted something about the 45th anniversary of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
And I'm like, but that's impossible because I remember the 15th anniversary of the Rocky Horror Picture Show because I was 13 and I went for the first time and I was like, oh no. So yeah, it's um, time. Just keeps on rolling. You started the weekly in Chicago, right? Yes. And that must have felt like you attained some level of success, right? I mean, you were you were being published in different alt weekly's. Yeah, that felt that felt good. That was the Lulu Eight Ball was the was still the thing that was most um, most specifically mine. I felt like I could I really sort of honed my, the way I write jokes um, and like my humor sensibility through that. Um, and yeah, I, I loved doing that strip. Um, I will say that uh, it, I made very, 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 very little money. Like I never could have lived off, off Lulu. But also I, I really had no clue how to like make it into like a web comic or like, you know, work the online angle to it at all. What was the disconnect? Just the promotion or? Promotion. I didn't, you know, I didn't have my own like website for it at that point. Like, you know, I had like a, a very bare bones portfolio site, but I just, it just didn't click that. I was like, I still was like, well, but it's in print. Print is, print is important. Um, meanwhile, you know, Perry Bible Fellowship, is amassing this huge following online and you know all these other like amazing web comics are really getting popular and i just somehow was like i well i don't know how to do that so i guess i'm never gonna so yeah that was um that was a that was a tactical mistake on my part why did you end up stopping the weekly because it had dwindled to the point where um it was really only still in the baltimore city paper um and it was, you know, uh, they were paying me 10 bucks a week. And um, a lot of other things were like, at that point, like besides the New Yorker, I was, I was trying to sell a TV show. Um, uh, and I was writing the um, Celebrity Dirt um, segment of the Jenny McCarthy radio show. <laughs> so I was just at a point where I'm like, I've got to, there's some, something's got to give. And I felt like every week I was just giving Lulu Ball like the shortest possible shrift. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to do a shitty ghost version of Lulu. And I'm like, and the Baltimore city paper had been bought by the sun paper and was very clearly on its last legs anyway. So I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, hit pause on this for the foreseeable future. And yeah. And then like a, a few months later, the city paper did go out of business. So I found that with every personal project in, in my career that I've abandoned, that I've, I've just hit pause on all of them. Yeah. The, the idea that at some point in my life, I was going to come back to them. Totally. Do you think that there's any remote chance that you will revisit that? I've thought about that, actually. I, I've thought about like, you know, I'm like, maybe I should do like a Substack newsletter or something like that. Like, I have thought about it. I haven't actually done it yet, but it's it's definitely like, you know, someday I'll get the band back together. There's something about the regularity that you must miss of, of, of like knowing what you're doing week mm-hmm. in, week out. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's somewhat fulfilled by, by like the batch schedule at the New Yorker and everything. I mean, that sort of like gives a, a certain rhythm to my week. Uh, but yeah, and I mean, I just miss the you know, it, it felt like I, I could basically just sit there in Lulu 8-Ball writing land and just kind of play around in my own shit for a while, which was, which was fun. 
Um, but yeah, I miss it. But I, and I honestly wouldn't say like, well, I'm never going to do it again. Um, but I also use so much of what I used to write that strip to write like a lot of the other things I do. So do you feel your stuff becoming more personal as you move on? Obviously there's New Yorker gag strips, but like whenever I see something of yours, that's really, you know, shared among my friends, it does seem to really be that the, the personal stuff, you know, the, um, the COVID one, the recent COVID one is a good example. The drawbreaker one is a good example that like, there's something that you're tapping into when you write something that is deeply personal. Yeah. I think that that has, it, that has become sort of an important part of, of what I do. I feel like it's my instinct to couch every feeling I have in, in a thick batting of jokes <laughs> But I have noticed, and I don't know if it's just a function of getting older or, or things shifting in the way that I think, but sometimes I just feel like I just want to tell the truth. You know, just tell it as, as something as truthfully as I can. And sometimes jokes help you tell the truth, and sometimes it's just you avoiding the truth. So, yeah, there are definitely times where I'm like, this is something that's just going to have to be a more serious piece. Um, I sometimes go back and forth when I'm going to do something serious. If it, if this needs to be like an essay or if this needs to be a comic, um, I don't know if I have like necessarily a good method for discerning which should be which. Um, but yeah, I am, I am glad that I've had the opportunity to do both. It's hard to make jokes. I, I know it's such a cliche thing to say, but like just in the current moment, there's a lot of value in being kind of really raw and true. If you can be honest and transparent about your struggles, then that's something that people are going to tap into right now. Well, I think if there's one sort of like connective thread that runs through everything I do, it's that like when I feel my work is at its best, it's when I've been able to keep sight of my sort of absurd quixotic love for our idiot finite tiny minuscule precious lives um uh, uh, years ago um a friend of mine like paid me probably the best one of the best compliments i've ever got about my work which was that it, it, it was it was kind um and i I, I try to keep that as kind of a, um, as sort of a touchstone, like, um, for everything that I do professionally in my own personal life. I'm a monster. What is, what does that mean? What does it mean for your work to be kind? It means that I, I try to keep a, a spirit of generosity towards the human experience, towards the fact that we're all in this ridiculous boat together i mean like obviously there's you know a, a galaxy of difference in 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 our circumstances but we're all you know going to die and we're all sort of just you know here lost and alone for like a short amount of like amount of time and we, we kind of have to look out for each other this is one of very sort of few moments in, in- the, the history of my life that I can think of where there is one thing. I mean, you know, maybe 9-11 was like that to some degree, but even that, like, uh, 
affected people to varying degrees. I was in like California at the time and I, I, I was asleep when it all happened. So I don't have like a, I don't have a great story, but this is, this is one moment, like you said, we're all, we're all in the same boat. Things affect us differently, but this is one moment where like, obviously it's still a spectrum, but like where we're all kind of to some degree going through the same thing at the same time. No, absolutely. And it's a, it is an ongoing worldwide problem you know i mean 911 was was you know unifying to an extent but it was a singular event um and it it its reverberations obviously you know were felt for for a long time but it wasn't like this sort of like ongoing seismic shift in how we how we did being humans um and that that i think is something that really has um mess with the psychology of the whole world it's like how do we do being human right now um and that that sadness that grief of that is is something that like that i that i i feel and it just it, and it, and ha- kind of have to work with as somebody who makes a an effort to be, I mean, is it safe to say that you, that you make an effort to be human and humane or is that something that just kind of comes naturally? No, I try. I'm naturally a garbage person. As that pertains to your work, you know, do you, do you, do you, do you is there a sort of a pervasive impact that COVID and everything else that's happening right now is happening, is having on your work across the board? I think that it's, it's, it has forced me to, um, it's kind of forced me to like really think more deeply about things than I might've um, uh, previously. It's, it's made instability a lot more of a, of a present, you know, worry. I feel like it made certain worries that could have been abstract, um, less abstract. And it's, it's, taken other worries like I don't know I had I wrote an uh an article for long reads about um aging that um I sold before the pandemic and then it ran after the pandemic and I was like who gives a shit about my neck now (laughs) but um I am happy to report that I have throughout the pandemic I have managed to keep worrying about my neck so there's that but um but yeah I think it's the it's the not knowing I think that's hardest on maybe all of us just not knowing what's going to happen not knowing like how to fight um not sometimes not even knowing like you know how how scared we should be it's it's the confusion and the and the unendingness of it I think really um really has a dampening effect on all of your on 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 everything really obviously there is value in doing a gag strip there there's value in doing something that can you know that that will that will make people laugh but you know was was there a point early on where you know just doing kind of a quick joke that felt uh perhaps more trivial than it had before not necessarily because i think it's really 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 important to have um moments of even just the stupidest levity i think my ambition towards like um markers of of success might look a little more silly in this light but i don't think that a desire to help people laugh feels feels 
feels trivial. So something you must be pushing against, you know, when you do sort of the, the, the more personal stuff is perhaps worrying about maybe being a little bit too, too navel gazy or being a little too sentimental. I mean, are, are you somebody who like, do you, do you tend to kind of bristle at being a little too, a little too open or a little too earnest? I never bristle at being too open. I worry sometimes it's like, Oh, stop whining. Like, um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily ever feel like, Oh, I've revealed too much about myself. Cause like, you know, like most writers or people who deal with humor at all, I'm just like, here's my heart. Cartoonists, especially I've noticed that there's something yeah. about humor cartoonists that really, <laughs> I have no problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, we will, we'll take a shit in public. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I try not to stray into, um, self-pity. I don't know if I'm always successful, but I try. Are, are you working on longer stuff at the moment? I am. I'm working on, um, God, I'm working on a, on a young adult pitch that I've been working on for forever with a very, very, very kind. Going to ask, cause I was listening to like a couple of 2018 interviews that you did and, and you had like, you had a very specific idea at the time. That specific idea has taken many forms since then, though, but, you know, but we're getting there. It was an epistolary book, I think maybe a conversation between you and a younger version of you. Yeah, it's not even close to that anymore. Okay, Um, that that sounded like a good idea. I was into it at the time. Yeah, no, um, it's now sort of like a a, a straight-ahead graphic novel set in the 90s, so... um, so yeah, I mean, I am, I'm working on that. Um, I, the main other proposal that I need to put together is um, like a kind of a gift box version of a, a course in gag cartooning that I teach. And uh, I am also working on a Kickstarter to start a humor writing residency for ladies. So um, yeah, yeah. Just trying to trying to get as many balls in the air as possible. I mean, it sounds like you find teaching is it as fulfilling as as doing creative work? Oh, I do like teaching. Um, I don't, you know, I don't teach regularly. I t- I taught an online course in the beginning of the pandemic that I actually really loved. Yeah, I don't, and I I teach workshops or I you know taught workshops like in in various venues before all of this went down. And yeah, what I like about teaching is it 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 teaches me. It, it it like helps me love something all over again, like describing why, what you love about something and how to do it um, sort of helps me remember why I like it or remember how I like it or remember how I do what I do. So, um, and it's just, it's really fun to watch people like do these exercises or practices and really like get into it and watch it change what they do. Like, yeah, no, I love teaching. Do you feel that over the years you've become more disconnected with whatever it was that helped that you fell in love with in the first place? Sure. I feel like um, with drawing, especially I have never, drawing has always been at least a little painful um, because I have never ever really been happy with how I draw. And I've like, what I want to be able to do with it and what I can do with it is so far apart that it is, it is sometimes like physically painful to do. So there are times when I feel like I, I want to go into couples counseling with my work (laughs) and figure out a a better, a better relationship to it. 
you know, that, that sense of, of like joy or flow or whatever, like I can hit that sometimes when I'm, when I'm writing, which is, which is great. And then I remember that the reason I went to art school in the first place is that I didn't want to ever hate writing. So, <laughs> so here we are. You felt that just the, the process of like seeing how the sausage was made or, or that pursuing it professionally was going to make you hate it? I think so. I mean, granted, you can't really, the things people think when they're 18 are, are sometimes kind of ridiculous. I but, mean, it sounds uh, like you, you were, but I was right. On that one. I was, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that it wasn't even like a, how the sausage is made kind of a thing. I just didn't want to be in a position where it, it felt like a, like a grind, but you know, so, and because I put a lot less pressure on myself about that, uh, about, you know, in, in terms of writing, I feel like, that grew in a healthier way um, than drawing did. And then performing is just this like weird offshoot where I, you know, I have no illusions about ever being like a professional stand-up or anything, but I just, I love to be on a stage and, and tell jokes. It's just very fun. Um, and it feeds what I do by giving it this kind of like, you know, friction um, and, and spark. Um, so yeah, like all the things that I do kind of feed everything else and come with their own set of, of you know, fears and inadequacies. There are careers to pursue in purely writing. I, you know, I, I am a writer and you've done, you've done a lot of, you know, just sort of straight prose writing. What is it that's kept you coming back to drawing if it's such a, a painful process? <laughs> it's my yeah. job. Is, is it just that like that's um, the thing that you got known for? So that's what you keep doing? That has a lot to do with it. And, you know, I, it is painful, but the only thing that is more painful than drawing is, is not drawing. So, so yeah. here we are. are. Are you able to find any kind of joy in it at this point? I am. I am. I mean, I, you know, yes, not uniformly and not like, not all the time, but you know, it's, uh, again, I just, I, I, I wish, I wish Art and I could go sit on a couch together sometime. I wonder with, with my own career and my own life, how much of feeling, how much feelings of inadequacy or even like, you know, perhaps in some cases like imposter syndrome is actually something that drives you to keep pushing yourself and to keep getting better. I think it can, well, I don't think anybody who looks at like what they do and thinks, without any hint of doubt that they're awesome and what they've done is awesome. I think that's a bad position to be in because chances are it's not. <laughs> I think believing your own hype is a bad situation to be in. I think you can tip over so far that like it, it gets, it gets crippling and you feel worse than you have to. But I think you should always be like a little, at least a little bit dissatisfied with what you've done. Are, are you able to, to, to look at what you've done and, and just, you know, be proud and, and understand why you've, you know, broken through and why people appreciate it? When I have enough distance from something, sometimes I'm like, oh, this right. <laughs> isn't the worst um, thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. And some stuff that I've done where it just, there's an essay I wrote from McSweeney's that I'm, I'm really proud of. Um, and I sort of had immediate distance from it because it didn't even really feel like it came from me. Like I wrote that in 20 minutes when my husband was out on a walk and it was just, and like, you know, they came home and he opened the door. I'm like, don't talk. Um, and it, it, it felt so 
like it just came from this ether that like I didn't even feel like I had any ownership over it. And that's one of the things that I'm proudest of that I've that I've written. It was the um, yes, I was in charge. I was in charge of the desk, cha- the deck chairs on the Titanic, and they absolutely did need rearranging. Was it the subject matter? Or was it just kind of the the circumstance of you know kind of feeling like you were channeling something? Um, yeah, I think it. I think it was almost like a like a pep talk to myself in a weird way. Like you know, everything might feel feel you know futile, but everything has always been futile, and you do the best you can for the um the sacredness of the work um and that is its reward is that a feeling that you're going to be chasing now that you've experienced it totally yeah it was amazing (laughs) is there something that you can kind of like isolate from that experience that you know you feel like can inform you toward perhaps experiencing that again um well the idea for that sort of popped into my head while i was just doing chores um you know, I, and then I kind of sat down the next day. Um, I think sort of realizing that my, I guess my subconscious will do a lot of the work when I give it something else to, to do um, is, is a lesson that like I learn over and over um, that like giving my hands something to do, like, you know, wash the dishes, clean the kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of times, you know, um, things will bubble up out of my brain just because it's my, my brain isn't occupied on my phone. Um, so yeah, I think I've probably, I've probably seeded a lot more brain space to my phone than is good for me. It's, it's a double-edged sort of, of having a, a creative career and, and being a freelancer is like, a, you know, obviously you can make your hours, but in a certain sense, you're kind of always working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, if you're, if you're writing or doing work about like current events, you, you kind of can't just be like, well, I'm just going to take a break from all of this for a while. So you, you kind of have to know what's, what's going on, both in terms of like politics and, you know, just general social vibe. 